Welcome to Hobby Horse. I'm Matt Howie, and today with us is old school blogger <laughs> Diana Sanders. <laughs> Great to have you here today. Um, I've known you for a zillion years, and uh, you were early in the blogging space and used to run Meta Girl. Um, is it still up? Do you still oh, post yeah, to it? Oh, yeah, it's still up. Actually, having its 20th birthday this year. Whoa. Started Meta Girl in, uh, in uh, 1998, uh, hand coding. Um, and writing my HTML in a text file or in a, you know, using a text editor. Um, and then, uh, I had, uh, these cool coworkers that were doing a temporary job down at, uh, Hewlett Packard and they were making this funny thing called Pyra <laughs> and, um, they did this side project called the blogger and I had blogger blog number 11. Um, wow. so there was my first uh, tech for for managing my blog, and then um, then I went to Movable Type, and have been and was on Movable Type until TypePad was out for a while, and I realized I didn't want to mess with the back end that much, and so I've been on TypePad ever since, and I am presently converting to WordPress. Ah. Well, I've also you know I Matt the other Matt. Uh, is uh, is is a friend as well, so I'm I'm happy to finally getting on his platform. I did I did consider Gray Matter at one point, so <laughs> I, I have all the old school, uh, the old school blogging uh, cred. I think uh, I love uh, you passed the test on um, old school blogger. When was the last post they made to their site? You've done three or four in 2018, which is better than I would say 90 percent of yeah. old school bloggers. You always look at their last post and it's like. Uh, summer 2015 they said one thing uh you know 2012 i mean we got we all got eaten up by twitter you know and facebook a lot of us are putting our best content out on twitter i have tried um one of the things that i'm doing with my blog that's a little weird is i'm trying to make it the master repository for all of my online activity and some of the early things that i did are on platforms that just completely vanished yeah but uh, I've, where I can, I'm pulling it all back into um, into metagirl.com. And so you'll see um, partial success in getting all of my tweets in there, getting everything I did on Flickr in there, um, things you know that I post on Medium are, are bo- both places. My personal blog I called early on my Temple of Ego. Not in like not, not in a <laughs> bad way, but like I should have one place where – if I'm using eight different tools, you should be able to find them. Like, put it all in my temple of, you know, like, here's what I'm doing in Flickr. Here's what I'm doing on Instagram. Here's what I'm doing. Yeah. And you also, this also passes the test. I don't know if you've ever done this. I just randomly jumped into 2003 in your archives. And, like, half of the posts fit in a tweet. Like, this is how we used to post. We yes. Used, we used to post, like, one sentence, two sentences. Yeah. And now we don't have to, so we don't post. Like, now, like... Do you think it, as your blog is like, ugh, like I got to write a whole essay about that? Like that has to, does it have to meet some sort of limit, you know, some... It's, it's, I don't feel a pressure, and this is maybe as part of, uh, so one of my other things is um, Discardia, the, the holiday I invented, sort of the philosophy <laughs> and reminder I invented for letting go of what doesn't make your life awesome. Um, one of my Discardian habits is that I do not feel an obligation to uh, post to the blog 
and um, don't beat myself up if I don't put something there, that if it's good, I will want to put it there, or I will find the place that is easiest to get it out in the world. Um, what I find gets me to post there um, and requires the long form or is suited to the long form is election slates. Uh, and I, always, I, I try and do those um, if I possibly can. So because I'm going to read up and everything and figure out my logic of why I'm voting which way I am. So I started sharing that. Um, and then it's just felt more and more important, you know, in, in the past five years. Um, so, you know, what's funny. It's the norm in Oregon where we vote by mail <clears throat> that like you have all the, you have a month to vote. Yeah. You do it on your own time. Like I pick a night, you know, a week or two before the due date and yeah. like sit down and Google everybody and try and figure out who's funding every little crazy prop proposition that pops up. And, uh, and those guides, but I mean, for a place where you have to be it there in a booth at 10 AM for five minutes, like those guides are, are super vital. Yeah. Well, and it's also helpful if you know, you know, I'm going to look at this, like even just looking at the cards you get in the mail, it's like, all right, whose opinion is this? Yeah. And I find for me in San Francisco, cause we have a really good sample ballot, um, looking at the pros and con arguments, is very helpful sometimes in the, oh, they're supporting this? <laughs> Let me look at it again, because maybe not. I have a I have a wacky neighbor who uh, has all sorts of bizarre conspiracy theories taped inside his <laughs> windows, and like whatever yard sign he puts on his yard, I know that person's toxic. It's like, ah. it's an awesome filter for... But a lot of times, our propositions are so shady and uh you know it's always like the americans for integrity fund and then you have to like it takes you you know five google steps to figure out that oh it's a Koch brothers group funded by like white nationalists who want to right. change this one immigration law um, yeah. these things keep happening where people are just trying to cloak themselves so uh you've written a few books uh discardia was the one about um being happy with less stuff and organizing yeah, and, your life. and less stuff in your head and less stuff in your in your house and or at least making sure it's the right stuff and and sort of the ha making a habit of tuning in and figuring out is this really the right thing for me still am I the person who wants this in their house still um, uh, and and wants this in their life and wants this in their head um, and then uh, you is know that close to the what's her name Mary Kondo or whatever yeah yeah I mean there's other approaches to this that that vary along the the spectrum of self-helpiness and and um, some of them have a dose of spirituality and some of them uh, have a, an extra dose of cuteness and a lot of them are very focused on um, they'll be very focused on the physical stuff or they're very focused on a spiritual practice and I'm pretty uh, non-woo-woo <laughs> so I wanted a practice that didn't necessarily have to uh, fit in any anybody else's framework and could fit in other people's framework to be fairly neutral yeah I guess people always couch um, you know declutter cluttered spaces with, with with something with something like religion or history or something and really everyone feels better right in, in a tidy place that has few distractions and few things in your periphery and like it doesn't have to be yeah well and, and the, if the stuff that's there 
amplifies what you do want to be thinking about. Um, one of the things I have as a habit is when I get into a hotel room, first thing I do is take all those little paper signs they put everywhere and put them in a drawer. Because <laughs> after I've taken in the important messages from them, I don't want to be reading that because most of them are ads anyway, right? Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily want that that uh to be in my in my mind i like i don't know how people have tvs on in their house when they're not too actively wanting to be watching that because it takes away room in my brain for other things so i like the noise to be i like the noise to be uh calmed down but i like the things that are around to kick me back onto the track i really want to be spending more time on yeah the one the the one moment it really clicked for me uh-huh. was when I cleaned the house like spick and span for some big event where people were coming over and um, my cats were like laying in the middle of rooms that they'd never done before and they just seemed happier than I'd ever <laughs> seen them and I realized like oh my god because like one cat was always you know wanting to sleep in a corner under the bed in the dark and was suddenly like loved to be on top of the comforter in the middle of the bed um in the middle of the day and i was like you know there's something like there's something biological to like a reduction in stress and a reduction in stuff that like yeah i'm seeing it in in these animals that have no literature and have no religion i think and have nothing but like they like they are physically reacting to me cleaning up in a highly positive way and i was like that like you know crosses species that's a mate you know that's when i was like huh maybe i mean i know i feel better when i clean my office for about you know a month before it turns into a a shithole but it really is it really is probably the same thing that the cats were responding to is that it's that unknown thing the box that you don't know what's in it the stack of papers that's mixed and maybe there's something important in there that you haven't handled it's that fear factor of the unknown and if you can at least identify these are the things that i have to act on and the rest of this i do i i consciously know i do not have to act on that's enormous hmm. And and it's background. It's this low-level thing that you're not aware that you're – every time you walk by that stack of papers, some part of you is going, oh, I really should short, sort through that thing, you know. So, yeah, I wrote about Discardia, and then I went naturally on from that, as one does, to write a book about low-alcohol cocktails, you know, like everyone does. No. Um, I, uh, I had – one of my other nerdy interests was collecting um, uh, cocktail history. Uh, I'm, I'm a historian – by training, but I never worked professionally in that field. So I now I describe myself as a feral historian. Um, and, uh, and so I'd been collecting cool cocktail history and also kind of hanging out, uh, with people who were generally taller and bigger than me Mm -hmm. and had greater capacity. And so I'd started collecting low proof drinks as a way to stay social without killing myself um, with, with like knocking myself out with everybody. And, uh, and then after a few years of it being the hot, everybody's like, Ooh, the hot new trend this year and the year after and the year after low alcohol cocktails. Um, I finally said, okay, I got to write the book and uh, brought that book out in 2013. And every year since at the end of the year, hot new trends in cocktails, low alcohol. Um, 
So I'm hoping I'm looking forward to the like 10th anniversary of of seeing that as a trend. And they call those shims. I've never heard uh, this term. The, it, well, this was the history thing. There wasn't a word for the category. But when I looked back through the old cocktail books, which all blessings to Google Books, many of which are available in digital form, um, uh, there's been a mix of alcohol proofs all the way along from the very first cocktail books that people have always been drinking at. uh, They've been drinking zero proof. They've been drinking low, super low proof. And they've been drinking sort of a little bit softer than we would normally drink now. And then what we'd think of as regular strength and what we'd think of as overproof all the way along. But there was no name for the category. And I wanted to have a word that you could just say, oh, I had a salad for lunch, so I'll just have a shim. You know, that was a noun. It was easy to call out. And um, so uh, shims are those little wedges of wood that you use to to yeah, fill yeah. and level things out and keep them from wobbling. And that works for people, too. Yeah. Keeping you from getting wobbly. I guess I never thought about um, alcohol levels on. They never say it on cocktails, really. Right. They're just always high. <laughs> right. They're always. Yeah. They're like, always... like beer says it right on the side. And I always think and wine says it. And right. beer has high alcohol content sometimes, you know, special beers. But right. cocktails you always think of as, you know, gasoline. Like these are gnarly. These are probably 20% alcohol or 30%. Right. I, I have no idea what the numbers are because, you know, they're all made on the spot. and There's no label. But Right. And they vary a lot because it depends on, on what the ingredients are. It depends on whether it's a classic cocktail or you're in you know, a dive bar and they're going to give you what amounts to a triple as their default. Right. Um Figure in general that a cocktail is about three times as strong as a typical serving of wine or beer, hmm. um, and a shim, uh, the the which has um, uh, no more than half an ounce of uh, high proof spirits, so like whiskey, gin level strength. Um, a shim is about as strong as a as a typical serving of beer or wine. So um, you can have you know, the nice thing about having these low proof drinks is that you can have cocktails along with your friends drinking Manhattans and martinis, but be drinking at a lower proof. Um, so, and a lot of them are drinks that people know from brunch. So the, the champagne cocktail is a classic shim. Um, and, uh, and, uh, there's, I mean, there's other ones that people know as, as, uh, sort of dessert drinks, the grasshopper. Um, which is cream and creme de cacao and creme de mint. I was going to say, are most of these sweet because there's other stuff like punch and stuff in it? It actually doesn't. The thing that's interesting is that proof doesn't track to, um, doesn't seem to track to a particular flavor profile. Uh, there are, the, though, assumptions about it do. So when people think about going low, lower proof, they tend to think fruitier, um, taller summer drinks. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter if you've got two ounces of gin in a martini in a in a small glass or two ounces of gin in a big, tall Tom Collins. If you drink that, you're you're still drinking the same amount of gin. Yeah. And even though it's it's diluted more in the big the big uh, tall drink, it's the same thing. And so. Um, my favorite of the low proof drinks right now uh, that I really love having is uh, a lot of them are sherry based, but the one I really love is the Adonis, and it's 
super simple. It's half uh, of a medium sherry like Amontillado or Manzanilla sherry and half sweet vermouth, dash of orange bitters, and you serve it up. And it looks like any of the other Manhattan-like brown up stirred kind of drinks. But it's it, – and it's complicated because sherry is beautiful and complicated, but it's milder. And so you can have one of those and not be – like, okay, it's party night. So are you working on a current book now? Um, I have uh, this long-term project. As an undergrad, I did a thesis um, for my history degree on household servants in Elizabethan England. And it was really interesting to study because it's so completely different from servants later. The, the whole upstairs-downstairs thing is a radically different pattern. Um, uh, in the Elizabethan period and, and sort of broadly 15th, you know, for, late 14th century into the, the um, 16th century um, and 17th century, uh, you had people who were family members. There wasn't a separate word for people who were your blood relations versus people who lived in your house and were part of your household unit. So family meaning only my blood relations is a later, a later thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the servants uh, ate with you. They were probably the children of um, friends and relations, acquaintances and relations, um, and business relations who were just a notch down on the social scale. So you would send your kids out to be servants in the household of someone you knew and trusted who was just a step up from where you were. And they would get social connections and they would meet um, future marriage partners and they would get work experience and skills and their own kind of skills that they'd need to run their own households later. And then um, in their mid-20s, usually – uh, mid early to to you know, maybe say 23 to 27 years old for most of them they would actually have saved enough to go off and form their own household at which point they would sort of be considered adults so service was really common across all social levels really um, a life stage more than a social class it wasn't a class. It wasn't a. Uh, there wasn't a service class. There was more this time of life where you were leaving your parents' home and getting your feet under you. So it's almost more like community college <laughs> or apprenticeship in yeah. a cer- certain way. And this is this never touches on like slavery or anything, right? No, no. Um, indentured servitude was really different, um, and part of the reason that. Um, that may have been a factor in, in what changed in service in, um, in the 17th century, um, 17th and 18th century was indentured servitude, um, which was radically different than the earlier pattern. Um, they, you know, and the English Civil War fell in there and there was all this weird class uh, fear about um, masterless men. Uh, you know, people who were not within the rigid social hierarchy and were freelancing, basically. Um, so how it changed, how we get from this early pattern to um, what emerges later where you have the upstairs-downstairs split 
Um, it, that is a really tricky part to, to study and put your finger on. I'm looking at reviving the picture of what this early pattern was like as, as typified under um, Elizabeth the first and um, and trying to point to the tail end of it. When can we see something happen that changes and what's our evidence for that? Um, so what my project is, is to go back and review all of the literature since I did my, um, my undergrad thesis. So, you know, just a few decades of, <laughs> of complete literature review uh, across an entire topic. But now there's Google Books. So I don't have to actually sit there with a 700-page book and visually flip through it looking for the word servant. I can search it for most things. And um, so it's it's kind of uh, the book that I'm working on is really kind of an overview of what is it that we we can say with confidence we know about this period. <laughs> so we're, uh, I guess we'll, we're not here to talk about that today. Uh, we're here to talk about you're way into D&D, right? <laughs> I am. I am. And I have been for ages and ages. Um, and like, this is a blind, this is a cultural blind spot to me um, in that um, I think in the early 80s or mid 80s when it was sort of spreading through my elementary school and middle school. You know, I don't know. I was, I think, social hierarchies were forming around sixth grade. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the first time people thought of me as a nerd. And uh, I looked at the D&D kids and was like, okay, those are nerds. That's not going to help my brand. Like, like, I know I'm not cool. I know everybody. I'm not a sports guy. And I'm kind of a nerd and I love computers. But, like, those people are nerds. And yeah. I had this dumb, uh, snotty, snobby attitude and, like, just avoided D&D my whole life. Fast forward to being an adult and like, yeah, I have several half dozen friends that kind of do it and I'm insanely jealous <laughs> that like they have this like nightly thing they do in person together uh, and I've never even played it my entire life. I've always wanted to. It sounds fun as hell and like, and you're like a full on dungeon master, right? And all I that stuff. So indeed. walk me through this. Have all you been right. doing it since the eighties? Uh, I actually, I actually go back to the late seventies. Um, so I was a, uh, I was a teenager when I started playing it. Um, when did it like sort of launch into popular culture? It was late. It was late seventies when it came out. Um, so I was on uh, the the before the first edition. Um, there was, I'm mean, not like back to chain, the chain mail booklet where you're, you're actually kind of doing, um, war games with lots of miniature figures on a, a, <laughs> a board, which like, I totally understand being really nerdy about wanting to move the little pieces and figure out exactly how it works and how a battle would work between, say, you know, my, my army has, um, you know, centaur archers, but you've got these magic users and like trying to plot that out in this giant landscape. Um, you know, but, you know, it's like, okay, but would really, if the, if the orcs had already breached the wall at, you know, at, at Hornshelm, would we, would we really have been able with the ants to change the, the, the flow of the battle? You know, I mean, like people re relitigating <laughs> things, um, those folks started it and that some of them became more fascinated with 
the individual stories and characters um, and wanted to have more of the, um, the smaller group story than the big epic battles. And that's where Dungeons and Dragons came from, um, that you first get these rules that describe a group of adventurers who are having, who are making heroic explorations and killing monsters and saving villages and finding treasure and getting stronger. And they laid out the rules for that um, in a little box set of three books um, and then came out with uh, another box set that was um, uh, a staple-bound blue-covered book Mine was blue anyway. Um, at least that's how I remember it. And it had some dice in the box, and it was the basic D&D set. And that was where I began. Um, but one of the things that I quickly figured out in the late 70s um, as a, uh, a young feminist, uh, uh, mind blown by Princess Leia and ready to, to launch my own, uh, my own future, um, was that D&D at the time was really sexist. Um, that female characters uh, had the limitations um, on their statistics on how strong they could be, and it's like you see this um, you see this in like some of the online forum trolling about things where people are like, yeah, but is it really realistic if she would blah 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 because women are you know don't have the upper body strength and it's like you have no problem with the magic but you have problems with somebody having slightly stronger biceps that's very strong. <laughs> um, so ice converted to playing tunnels and trolls, which was much sillier, but everybody could be. Um, as strong as their fantasy character vision, you know, that every, if everybody's a hero, then it doesn't matter what the average is, you're that hero. And you want to, you want to play that, uh, that character to their fullest. And so um, it was a much more inclusive approach. And it was much more relaxed. Um, it was much less rules lawyery. Um, than, than Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so I got, I picked up on the D and D stuff and got the first monster manual and some of the other early books, um, and some of the supplements that were not officially from, uh, TSR, who was the publisher of it at the time. Um, Ardwin, uh, this, this weird guy, Dave Hargrave, um, had a little shop in Concord, uh, which was, like a 45 minute bus ride from where I grew up in Martinez. And so I went to his store and like would buy things and dice, extra dice and, and, um, and his weird little little booklets that were his spin on what his world might be. Um, so if you sort of think of it as uh, homebrew content in the broader Dungeons and Dragons fantasy role-playing space, this guy had his little booklets and that was how we did it in the around the year 1979, um, you would go to a physical place and you would buy a physical little book and then you would riff off from that and you would spend hours um, at your desk drawing dungeons on graph paper with pencils while you listened on your um, AM radio uh, to the same 
40 songs over and over again. Or if you were really lucky, um, you would listen to Dr. Demento. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was that was the early years. Uh, I had very supportive parents um, for this. I actually um, uh, was dungeon master for them uh, in some games um, with friends of mine. Uh, so a bunch of us nerdy, uh, adult-friendly kids would game with my parents, who were great about it. And uh, and I keep trying to get them to come back and play again. Um, my mom had a, a half-elf thief named Serendipity Thomas. And uh, and my dad had a, a, I think he was an elven fighter named Floki Fairhair. I th- I think I found their character sheets, so I may need to to convert their character sheets to the latest version and then uh, get them back in the game at some point because they were very fun to play with. So your parents never succumbed to like eighties what like satanic paranoia. <laughs> like, no, no. D and D was like close to heavy metal and uh, you know trench coat kids and yeah, like it was pretty bad. That's great that they were open minded enough to to be cool with it. Oh, yeah. Well, they liked it because it was storytelling. And it wasn't really, like, even before I found it, I was writing, you know, I was writing little stories and drawing characters and there were dragons in them and things. So it wasn't, it wasn't at all a strange leap to go to, um, to telling the stories collaboratively with a group of friends. Um, and, and, you know, everybody, I make up a world and tell you what happens and you tell me what you do in it. And that's how we're going to make the story. Um, but, uh, they were, they were super supportive. They saw the creative side. I understand how some of the paranoia came out because the artwork was very like the artwork on the cover of the heavy metal albums. There's lots of chainmail, bikini clad, you know, damsels in distress or damsels wielding great axes. And, um, and there's lots of devils and, and demons. Although usually the devils and demons are getting attacked. Yeah. Killed. Yeah. Um, so the, there was this huge misunderstanding of the the anti D and D groups at that time, because it's like no, we're we're fighting the bad guys, we're fighting evil. Um, but I guess because you're describing it in you know in gory detail and and you know you're painting a vivid and exciting picture of a villain, they were afraid that that's popularizing the villain, even if the goal at the end is to kill that villain. <laughs> Uh, so, like, how many versions didn't they just come out with a new version of? So, has there only been like what three or four versions? Of... It's actually gone through a funny life cycle. It was much slower in going through new versions um, before the last uh, decade or so, or fifteen years. Um, I played through uh, my teen years in college I tended to play other games um, Call of Cthulhu and I played some uh, Champions which is a superhero game um, uh, just based on what uh, what the, the there was a really good game master uh, who was a couple years ahead of me who was in my dorm um, so it was cool to have somebody else be a good DM <laughs> uh, and then uh, and then I kind of fell out of um of the whole fantasy game world, uh, the sword and sorcery world in the nineties, when, um, in the early nineties, people were playing, uh, 
much more vampire, uh, werewolf, you know, kind of horror and ricey kind of world. Uh, mm-hmm. All of the White Wolf books were out then, and so there, and there was more live action role playing in that area. Um, I did have a game store um, in the mid '90s, which was one of the other weird hats that I have worn. You owned one? Yes, I did. A little tiny wow. bookstore uh, and game store. Sold magic cards and everything. Yeah, I was going to say, wouldn't Magic the Gathering be a big thing? It was 70% of my damn business. I tell you. <laughs> yeah, if the if the supply lines for uh, Ice Age, the Ice Age uh, expansion hadn't been so bad, I probably would have kept that store open for a few years. But we were getting like one box instead of a case, so... It's a little bit hard to weather the uh, the supply line problem. They 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 expanded the game faster than their printer could keep up with, and so for about four months, um, maybe longer, maybe it was more like six months. It was you couldn't get enough cards to meet demand. Everybody wanted to play, and there were just not enough cards. Um, so that was an adventure. So when did you pick it back up? Like. So I picked it back up after I moved um, to uh, San Francisco, and um, my uh, awesome friend um, – actually, how did it work? Uh, actually, a friend of mine, mutual friend Jason uh, said, hey, I'm in a D&D game, and we need more players. Do you want to play? And I'm like, oh, God, I haven't played for a decade. I would love to. Uh, and – I got in that game, and that was um, that was a game which had our mutual friend George Oates, the magnificent oh, cool. George Oates, who designed Flickr and is doing incredible stuff with libraries right now, with or, and museums, mostly museums, um, and uh, and should be you should hobby horse with with George. I don't know what <laughs> yeah. topic you guys will find, but she has amazing side hobbies as well. So George and I were um, in this game uh, with, um, a, you know, usually a handful of people, but we we're the core of this game. And that was in late 2005. And I've just never stopped. Like as soon as I started playing again, it's why did I ever give this up? It is so much fun to let go of everything else and create a character and sit in person around a table with a group of friends and make each other laugh and feel these big sweeps of emotion and um, and and succeed at things or struggle and fail, but then move, you know, recover and succeed later. It's so rewarding. It's so healthy. And I'm just really thrilled to see that it's taken off. The To answer the earlier question you had about how many versions there were, the versions changed a little bit over time. And for some reason, the, the version um, two versions ago was very focused again back to the physical layout of the table and the mechanics of it and moving the little pieces around and are you at the right angle to shoot at that guy and do you have enough movement to really get there and it got super precise about uh, all the possible things you could do in a turn and and less about the storytelling and less about the characters um, and less about the character growth and making a team and things like that. So when um, the current group of developers of the game uh, 
when it came to do a new version, they went back to the storytelling at the heart of it, and they did a very long beta test, which um, my uh, D&D group participated in. And um, that test shook out so many of the problems, and they they when they were happy, they came up with version 5, it, uh, fifth edition, which has just come out uh, in the past few years, and I don't think it's broken. I don't think there's anything that I find, well, it's great, except I wish they would, blah, blah. It's just really good. And and they're not talking about the next version. Nobody's talking about when we do the next version. Now we're talking about let's expand from here with other worlds and stuff. They finally got it right, basically. Is the goal in in the game to just have a well-balanced... I mean, you're trying to take luck out of it, right? Like, there's dice rolling, and that's a little bit of luck, but... Actually, there's a lot of luck, because really what's happening is you are... You're collectively coming up with a place that you want to tell a story and a set of characters that you want that story to be about, and nobody knows all the facts. Like, nobody knows everything um, at the table. Everyone has areas of unknown, including the dungeon master. And so um, you lay those, what you lay the facts out together uh, as time goes on, things get revealed and it changes how people interact and it changes what happens in the world. Um, my characters will, you know, my players will do something that inspires me to add whole areas onto the world or emphasize something I wasn't going to emphasize before. But the way that it feels real and not just us going, well, then I, is the is the dice rolling because there is that element of uncertainty. You say what you want to do, and then if it totally if it's a simple thing and it totally makes sense, then I, as the dungeon master, can say, yeah, okay, that happens. Um, but if it's if there's an element of chance, if maybe you're you're not going to succeed in hitting the monster or climbing up the cliff or whatever, then it's roll a die, you know, and see what happens. And so that uncertainty is what allows everybody to have that uh, improv yes and thing happen of, oh, okay, I rolled a one instead of a 20 and uh, you know, what something really bad happened. And so what is that really bad thing? Um, Tuesday night's game, uh, um, one of my players, uh, Terrence, uh, has a, uh, a elven, young elven warlock, and he is a little nervous, um, and he's super impressed by one of my other players' characters, Lance Arthur, um, has a dragonborn paladin who is huge and mighty, and he's a paladin, and he looks super fantastic and important all the time. And uh, Terrence's character uh, cast a spell and rolled a one. And so what we decided happened was that he hit the battlements next to Lance's character and actually blew away part of the stonework. So then Lance had to make some rolls to see if he succeeded in not falling off of the top of this wall that he was on fighting something and he didn't make the rolls. And so he fell off the wall. And, uh, and so then there was this exciting thing of he had fallen down and fell down next to another monster. So he's lying on his back on the ground with this other monster next to him. And, and then there's Terrence going, oops, 
uh-oh, oh, I blew it, you know. And so it's this great storytelling moment of what happens. And, and then I blew my role as the monster and managed not to hit uh, the vulnerable uh, character on the ground. And so then Lance was able to jump to his feet and slay that guy. But it's all up in the it's all up in the air. It's all up as we go. And, and there's this like, oh, what's going to happen thing that makes it super fun. So how does how long does a game take? Because, you know, I hear friends doing this for weeks and weeks. Is it oh, yeah. as long as you want or never right. ending? It's as long as you want, as long as um, – so we play uh, – we try and play um, every week. Usually there's uh, – it, it'll wind up that, you know, people can't all make it all the time. But as long as we can get three players together, I try and have a session uh, every week. How long is a session? Uh, about three hours usually. Oh, well, yeah, three, three and a half. We get started about 6 or 6.30. Um, we usually order food. Um, so the other great thing about playing as adults is, you know, cocktails, really good food. You know, uh, everything is uh, like we've got, you know, very nice, all, all the, the, the nice things around. It's not Doritos and, and Mountain Dew unless we want that. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, you know, somebody will show up and like Lance showed up the other day with uh, with carbonated uh, carbonator and, and carbonated uh, cocktails. Oh, nice. Yes, it was very civilized, you know, and, you know, just pours those like not we're not like drinking all night, but just that there's this elevated here we are getting together to do a fun thing to get together um, part of it. Um and so we'll play, uh, we usually play till 9.30 or so. Um, and then, uh, and every now and then we'll get, we'll, like, everybody will be in town on a weekend and, like, oh, let's do another session. Um, but most of the time it's just this weekly thing. We've been playing for a few years in this particular campaign, um, watching these characters grow over time. But we weren't at the weekly level for most of that time. Um, what's, what's happened over the years is different ones of us will have a story we want to tell and get together a group to play in that world. And so Lance has been the, the dungeon master in games that I've played in. Terrence um, actually uh, dungeon masters some of the time um, to give me a break, uh, not in my world, but in another scenario uh, using one of the published adventures. Yeah, I was gonna say, how much is is uh, you following a book and versus total improv making stuff up? <laughs> um, for mine, it is um, it is except for the the core rules that were the the way um, combat works and the way you deal with you know what the monsters are and things. It's entirely made up uh, as an improv task. Um, uh, it's it's super intense being a dungeon master. It's super fun, but it is, it is all you, you're, and you have to yes. And it's really, you know, very rarely is there, um, a reason that it makes sense to shut a player down on what they said happened or what they want to have happen. Um, every turn isn't like a battle, right? Like, well, no, no. And the turns aren't really, I mean, turns only really come into play in combat. Um, okay. It's much more loose form than other games. Uh, uh, so we'll talk through um, like a journey that people are taking and I might have them make a few rolls to see if they like perceive things along the road, if they learn things 
about the area, uh, if they're tracking somebody, how well they do at tracking, or if they're about to get ambushed, if they notice the ambush before it happens. Um, but most of the time, it's only when we're in combat that there is any strict whose who's turn it is. And that's just to make combat uh, more fair and, and go smoothly. So you roll for initiative, um, which gives you the order in that combat of how, how who's going to go first and, and second, and the, the bad guys, the other foe, the, the other group, uh, the, you know, the monsters or whatever it is, uh, is right in that same sequence. Um, so we'll just go around the table in that order of, that has been rolled. So sometimes you were paying a lot of attention and you're really fast in that, you know, your reactions are really good. And sometimes you roll really crappy. And for that combat, like everybody else is going first and then you're sort of dealing, playing cleanup. Um, so it isn't always the same, which is really nice. So if someone wanted to play, how do you even get started? Like me? <laughs> yeah. Well, first, for you, when you next time you're down in San Francisco on a Tuesday night, you're going to guest spot, and I'll work you into the game. So just <laughs> let me know. Um, I might be there this Tuesday night. <laughs> really? Yes, we'll I think I'm there. We'll talk about this at the end. I yes. can make this work. They've got a really good battle coming. So if you have friends, ask them. That would be yeah, step yeah, number one. Absolutely. If you have friends, um, ask them. And no shame anymore. Like even the jock geek split is is vanishing because there are so many jocks now who are like yes i play dnd and i love dnd well if you didn't if you'd never played it is it possible for three people in the other side of the country completely unconnected to buy certain books and just follow the directions and kind of play oh or is it totally totally and i mean actually the basic rules are available for free um you just go to dndbeyond.com dnd.com um uh, dndbeyond.com and find the basic rules there and then um uh the the it's useful as um the dungeon master for me to have access to all the books um so i actually uh pay for i I first bought the books but um uh then dnd beyond came out and so now i have a subscription on there and so when new books come out i get um, access to those because I bought the the super subscription because I am hardcore. Um, and uh, if you want to just try it out um, at a lot of gaming conventions, there's there's games you can join in. Um, a lot of game stores have uh, open gaming night, and that's the best way for people to find other players and to just give it a try. But the only thing to remember is. Not everyone is a great game master or not everyone is the right game master for you. So try it with different game masters and see um, see who meets the style that you like as you start to figure out what you want to play. Like some people really love uh, the combat and they really want to just go and bash things and like get treasure and level up and get more powerful and get uh, you know new weapons and stuff. Other people really want... Uh, a super political intrigue game that palace politics or you're you're the the you know you're trying to navigate the politics between the thieves guild and the you know the council in this town and these other like the merchants you know the merchants guild and like how are you going to play one against the other and not get in trouble and 
Um, and some people want uh, really big epic stories where they are uh, changing whole, you know, they're dealing with like there's a time of war and they're dealing with huge battles between two kingdoms. And some people want a tiny story where they're saving the little village from the marauding wolves. Um, and they start, I like to start really small because I think it's a better way to, to get to know your characters. Is a small game like a couple sessions, a few weeks, or is it a one-night game? It's not necessarily how long, small in how long the, you take. It's more small in the scale. What's the lands, the, the world, the, I, the area of the world where your players are influential? Um, like maybe they are the the local heroes in this little village and they travel in within a few days of that place and they're not doing epic uh you know epic battles that change you know who controls empires they're really dealing with um local politics or local local threats um or you know there's uh there's a haunted old tower that belonged to a wizard and they've gone to that tower and they're cleaning it out and and trying to get rid of the ghosts that have been threatening the the nearby you know whatever the old inn on the road i'm surprised the uh starter kits on amazon are like 20 bucks from the official company oh yeah i i mean i'm used to like um I don't know if you've gone to a game store lately. Everything is like $60 for yeah. a board game. Well, production costs, like all, you know, everybody wants really nice wooden pieces now. And yeah. I'm also a board game fan, but, uh, but you know, I would throw all those over for D&D at M.O. <laughs> I'm just amazed that D&D's, well, I guess it's a starter set. It says it's only a, it's a good beginner set. It's only a subset of some stuff that you get but 20 bucks versus right i mean some i know people started giving me games for christmas presents a few years ago and then i wandered into a game store to see you know games i'd heard about and i couldn't believe the prices like because it's just cardboard and some plastic things and there's a lot of development and you know well the production quality is the is the big thing that's um yeah i backed a few things on kickstarter and getting production quality where you want it and getting it packaged and delivered um and the weight of some of these things is a really like you know 10 pound box is a really big problem oh right so yeah shipping and like even if you're selling it to even if you're selling it wholesale like that that's a big impact i like so I'm not surprised that that games cost that. And when you think about how much um, how much entertainment value you get off them, because you're talking half a dozen people, and a, even if you only play it one time, that's a whole evening's entertainment compared to going to the movies or right. having you know even buying buying some beers and and you know something to barbecue. It's not that expensive by comparison. But when you look back at, you know, how much did it cost to buy Parcheesi <laughs> or, you know, whatever, um, that, you know, don't break the ice, um, that, then it's like, okay, this is, this is a more of an investment. But it's cheap to get started, and it can be free. Um, just go to your local game store, look at, look at the information online, um, about making a character. Um, if you're not the dungeon master, 
the only book that you really might want to own because it's beautiful and it has everything you need to know is the player's handbook. And, and then you're set. And, you know, if you're never going to be the one who's trying to create the worlds and have cool monsters and like, uh, just create, uh, um, the, the, the landscape that everything happens in, then you don't need more than that. Wow. 45 bucks for a 50 bucks for a player's handbook. Right. The player's handbook is huge for this edition is big and thick and it really is a one-stop shop. It's got it's a, like a Bible. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it's got everything you need to know about how spells work. It's got all the spells. Um, there are actually, I should say if there are other character types that you can play that are described in other books, um, but the other thing to do is to, to look, um, you know, like at those, just download those basic rules and get started with those because hmm. you don't have to buy that until you know that this is something I really enjoy. Um, and if you find a game master that, um, you really like, uh, and, or a group that you really like, all of you together may go in on a D and D beyond subscription because in a campaign, you can share the subscription and all share access to the books, which is super civilized of them. So I, on my subscription, um, our, our little group of gamers can see every one of the books online, um, which is super nice. Even the new one that's just brand, brand new and out, as soon as it's out, they get it. How do people become dungeon masters? Just uh, love a storytelling and yeah, or you get frustrated um, because other people aren't doing it the way you would want to do it, and so then you start doing it. That was uh, that's how I Matthew Mercer, um, who is one of the best known dungeon masters right now for doing Critical Role, um, which is a weekly uh, video cast, um, which I highly recommend. Uh, uh, the story that is going on in that is is really cool. Um, oh, I was going to say there there are professional dungeon masters, right? Have you sampled a few before? Are they like much much better? Like um, amazing. I have played with professional um, game designers uh -huh. um, at conventions, and the really good ones are amazing. The really good ones are truly amazing and. Um, make you a better player and make you a better dungeon master just from doing one session with them. Um, so like go to a fun gaming convention that fits your style, whatever, um, get game, get together. You overall like the feel of it, um, and play in some games, just sign up for some games and play, because if you get a good DM, then you, you start to, to go, Oh, it can be like this. Okay. Um, but now there's there's also all these people who are uh, broadcasting games. There's and th one of the great things about that is it's showing the diversity of the players. Um, uh, the their, the uh, critical role um, is half female players. Um, there's uh, lots of different uh, folks out there. Uh, I just backed one that um, Matt Baum is doing. That's uh, drag queens all uh, <laughs> sure. Um, just launched. I haven't watched any of them yet, but or listened to them. Their podcast. Um, so they're just recording a game. Yeah, yeah. These so are, like so is an episode like three hours long. Yes. <laughs> oh God. Right. Yes. So this is the hard part. I am a couple weeks behind on Critical Role because 
um, I can only I only watch it basically on my iPad while I'm folding laundry, doing dishes, you know, stuff like that is how I keep up. And so during the course of a week, I probably get through an episode. But if, it's, if we're traveling or something, <laughs> I end up a week behind. The most recent episode is four hours and 21 minutes long. Oh, yes. my God. Yes, but you definitely start with uh, Campaign 2, Episode 1. Because <laughs> there's so many revelations about these characters that are still coming out. And they're such fun characters. One of the things that makes Critical Role so great is all of these folks are professional voice actors. Oh, great. And, um, and you will, at some point, if you play... Uh, video games, you will likely recognize one of those voices because all of them have worked for a bunch of, of video games. Uh, they're all, uh, they all worked on uh, Dead Fire, Pillars of Eternity, Dead Fire that just came out, and, and they've done lots of other things. Um, and they do other weird stuff, like one of the players just won an Emmy, a daytime Emmy. Good Lord. For doing uh, voicing, I think it was a Disney cartoon. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... Like these are so they are, but you don't have to necessarily do the voices if that's not your thing as a dungeon master. You know, don't don't do the voices. Um, uh, and and as you start playing, it's not like you have to role play your character a whole lot at first when you're comfortable to it. You know, when you when you want to react as your character, when it starts to feel more natural to react as your character, um, then do it. But otherwise, you can say, well, I'd say blah blah. You know, and, and not not necessarily uh, feel pressured to do to play in any particular way. So yeah, I didn't think about this, but you could just listen to podcasts if you want to get into it, right? So you can, oh, totally. Like these are great examples of how like top tier game is going to be played and how it's going to work. Yeah, yeah, and the other thing is, it really listening to a few of them. Um, will give you a sense of how widely the styles can vary. One of the things I like about watching the video is any of the ones that are that are actual video, um, you get the sense of what it's like at the table and that making each other laugh, that making each other actually making each other cry happens in these games. Not, not in a mean way, but in a a super intense character development way is real cool when, when it gets to that point. Um, and you know, it ranges from the, the profound to the ridiculous. Have you seen, have you ever listened to the adventure zone, which is like the McElroy brothers? I haven't. No. Uh, they're like kind of comedy podcast guys who, uh, play it with their dad. I think it's, yeah, I've heard nothing, but I, I assume they're very funny people. I assume it's very enjoyable to listen to. That was good. Um, and then uh, at PAX, um, the big gaming convention, um, there is uh, a, a group uh, that does um, uh, Acquisitions Unlimited is the name of that particular um, uh, set of, of uh, uh, adventurers. That's their, their team name. Oh. Uh, those are really funny. Matt Colville is another uh, DM that I've I've heard great things about as a DM. I actually haven't watched any of the things he does that he's um, dungeon mastering, but I've watched his tips for dungeon master stuff. And I've backed a Kickstarter for a new uh, supplemental book that he's putting out on strongholds. Very excited about that. Um, (laughs) So it's like once your adventurers have reached this massive level and they have all this treasure and power, what are they going to do with that? 
well, maybe they'd like to build a stronghold or have, you know, make a, a you know, become a, a, a political power in the, their uh, in their world. And so this is background stuff for that. So that, I think that book is going to be a nice expansion to the available rule set. Sweet. So to wrap it up, um, D&D sounds super fun. It's super fun. <laughs> D&D dungeon mastering sounds uh stressful but like oh, uh, creative and amazing yeah exactly yep it's 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 going on stage basically the intro stuff is basically free or cheap um and then there's plenty of podcasts and videos to kind of guide you as like what you know what is considered good play and stuff and good games yeah what's it like and what's the range of what it's like you know there are there are um there are people who are super serious and into it and and um don't make anachronistic references while we're playing and try and be in character if you can and there's other people who are just making jokes the whole time and and much more casual about it and it's all what your particular group likes and if you're if you have a group that's mismatched over time change it Oh, and uh, if you're at a gaming convention, check it out there because there'll be people, you know, like real pros playing it and you could watch it or even guessed it yeah and even more like just go down to your local game store and say hey what night is the uh you know there's Ad- adventurers league that you know there's there's D pickup games um that you can just join in and you can say i'm a total beginner i need somebody who's got the patience to take walk me from the beginning and they're there all the time every week you can find these folks so it's great way to start Awesome. Thanks for uh, talking today, Diana. Super fun. All right. You're going to have to just let me know when we're, we're getting you down in a game. <laughs> yeah. That'll be good. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Just as a quick follow-up, uh, it turns out right after me and Diana recorded, the next week I was in San Francisco for work and uh, you know I happened to hit her Tuesday night game and she made a character for me and we battled an alligator for three hours and it was a total blast and I loved it. Loved my first experience with D&D. I'm changing things up a little bit, and I've added some new theme music on the beginning and end of the show, and that's Samaritan by the Long Winners, uh, which is John Roderick's um, band uh, for the last couple decades, and uh, he was an earlier guest. And when he was a guest on the show, I forgot to tell him a, a story about... We were talking about, um, coincidentally, uh, one of his songs is uh, Fire Island, Alaska. Um, I've probably seen him live about a dozen or two times uh, in small venues and big venues uh, back when his albums were coming out and as sort of revivals. And uh, I I just, the most rock and roll thing I ever saw was uh, one of his band intros, which was, uh, I was in this little club, we were in this little basement. It's probably only the second time I'd seen him. Uh, you know, he'd done a perfectly good show the first time, the first time I saw him, but the second time it was just this tiny intimate club, you know, maybe 150 people in the audience was all that could fit. And, uh, he sort of just, uh, uh, they had the, the band just start up the song in the most interesting way. Uh, like each, each, uh, member of the band came out from behind the curtain, started playing a part. So it was just the drummer going and then just the bass and then just the guitar player laying down a rhythm. And, uh, and it just built, and it built up, and it built up, and it felt like it took five minutes or ten minutes just to build the start of this song that's normally 30 seconds long. In reality, it was probably 90 seconds or something to build up. 
But, uh, you know, John just burst out from the uh, curtain to sing the first lyric of it, and it was easily the most rock and roll thing I'd ever seen. The audience exploded, and uh, it was just amazing after all that buildup. It was really great, and uh, and I'm kind of bummed I forgot to mention it on the Alaska episode uh, when we were introducing him and uh, talking about his career as a musician uh, previous to becoming a podcaster. So that's it, and from here on out, we're going to be using uh, Samaritan by the Long Winners. Thanks. <laughs>